0: Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically.
1: My karaoke song is Champagne Supernova by Oasis, which has the benefit of being a very long song, so people are really enthralled by the time I get into minute four, you know?
2: I haven't done karaoke in, God, I think since like my early 20s, and I'm 74 years old.
1: need some new friends, Matt.
2: Uh, no, I don't think so. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, August 14th, California confronts the eviction cliff. It's high, it's scary, it's uh, ominous. I could think of more words, but, uh, Bad. I think kind of sums it up. You always paint a picture, Liam. Yes. So as millions of Californians are unemployed, some struggling to make their already outrageous rent payments, the prospect of a wave, a tsunami, a tidal wave of evictions looms in the offing. And we'll be discussing what the state legislature and the federal government may be trying to do about that. And we have a big get for the podcast to talk about this with. Who we got, Liam.
1: We have the perfect guest, as we always do, U.S. Congresswoman Maxine Waters, a Democrat from Los Angeles, chairwoman of the House Committee on Financial Services. And also, she is the author of a bill that would add $100 billion, billion with a B, in rental assistance as part of the Democrats' plan to address the virus.
2: And star of the Reclaiming My Time remix. For the Gen Z kids out there, look that up. That was a big deal a few years back. The original and the remix. Um, a brief reminder here to rate and review the podcast if and when you get a chance. We always appreciate those comments and they, well, I guess we don't always appreciate those.
1: <laughs> Usually, we always in most appreci- cases, appreciate the comments. Yes. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. And they definitely help in terms of, again, justifying the podcast's existence.
1: By rating, reviewing the podcast, you're really rating, reviewing us personally. And so oh, we, God.
2: We, please be nice.
1: Yes. It goes right to our egos and our hearts. So thank you.
2: Now you know how Liam interprets any type of constructive criticism. We'll also be talking about a story I published earlier this week, looking at evictions that have happened during the pandemic and during the eviction moratoriums, legal evictions that happened. I think there's this thought that things
1: have been on pause around the state in particular, but your street is a... Really good job of showing what that actually means. And what was it? More than 1,500 that you were able to get a 1,600. Yeah. 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 You know, just during the pandemic period. And so there's always going to be situations that make things hard for people on both the landlord and the tenant side.
2: But first, the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery, it is... The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks, and this avocado is a good one. This avocado takes us to the famed Garden Igloos of San Francisco. Famed. Famed. You are a a fan of fine dining, Liam, are you not? I am indeed, yes. I remember when you were here in Sacramento, that was a consistent complaint. The level of restaurant dining was not to your Michelin-starred liking. True. Anyway, why don't you tell us about this this avocado in San Francisco and what exactly a garden igloo is. So I've actually never been in an
1: igloo. I don't know if you have, but these are a special, a special kind of igloo. <laughs> you know, I've never been in an igloo. I don't think I've ever lived. It's a good point. Anyway, continue. Maybe that's something we can check off our bucket list. Bucket list. Yeah. I- igloo living. But these are sort of see-through igloos. Structures covered in clear plastic, and this is a system that was purchased by a Michelin star Japanese restaurant in San Francisco called Hashiri. And why? As you may be aware, Matt, there's the coronavirus going around, and we can't have people eating inside. But restaurants want to find a way to have people eat outside. And so Hashiri has come upon the igloo method, where people are sitting in the igloo to enjoy their $200 person sushi meal. And one reason given for why they decided to do this igloo process was to keep away the homeless folks who frequently come around this neighborhood in San Francisco from the fine diners.
2: Yes, and that is the avocado-y part of this. Literally building a clear enclosure to keep the fine diners of San Francisco protected from people experiencing homelessness. Liam, would you dine in one of these igloos? All my meals have been takeout. I have not eaten at a
1: restaurant since the pandemic began, inside or outside.
2: So just to be clear here, your reason for not dining in the garden igloo is more related to your own personal fear of the virus than to the optics of having a clear bubble to protect you from people experiencing homelessness. Both, let's go with both. I mean, is anybody
1: going to eat in these? I gotta tell you, I look at the menu, it looks pretty delicious. It's got some sea urchin, smoked salmon. This is from the Cervant Chronicle article where we discovered this. Some corn sweet potato soup, Wagyu beef, uh, delicious. It just looks like a delicious meal. It's a shame that you'd have to eat it in an igloo outside.
2: And I don't want to make too much light of this because obviously there are now serious health implications of perhaps interacting with people who are experiencing homelessness in a very, very close setting. That is part of the impetus for this.
1: Well, interacting with anyone in a very, very close setting.
2: Of course, yes. You know, lots of San Francisco restaurants have complained over past decade that homelessness, you know, literally outside their doorsteps has been an economic drain on them. But the garden igloo is a pretty Extreme. inventive solution. Yes. yes. Yeah. All right, anything else on the Garden Igloo? I think we pretty
1: much got this one into the ground. But uh, we do want to tell our listeners that, yes, we know about the liberal lion economist uh, Robert Reich. I love that you have liberal lion
2: here in the yes, notes.
1: Liberal lion. And fight over historic preservation next to his house and how this said liberal lion came down on the side of preservation instead of new housing. Certainly a contender for the avocado this fortnight. Strong and contender. We do plan on inviting him to a future episode. Hopefully he'll agree and we can talk about it.
2: Yes. Robert Reich, a lecturer at the Goldman School of Public Policy. Let's move on to the eviction cliff. So Liam, why don't we start off here with some context about kind of the horrific situation both the country and the state may be confronting
1: so there was a new study that came out just very recently from the aspen institute and a bunch of housing advocates and academics around the country showing that almost 40 million renters that's like roughly the equivalent of the population of california across the country could be at risk of eviction over the next several months as the pandemic continues to ravage the economy in california they're estimating between 4.1 million and 5.4 million which is a gigantic number of people now To this point, as we've been talking about for weeks and months, many Californians have been insulated from these issues despite sort of the huge job losses that we've seen during the pandemic because Mm -hmm. of a combination of these expanded unemployment insurance benefits, which added $600 a week to regular unemployment, right? So replacing a lot of folks' wages and at the lower end of the scale, in fact, more than what they were making, plus a decision by this state court system to halt nearly all eviction cases. Mm -hmm. But now there's a problem with both of those things. What's the problem? Both of those things are ending or have ended. So the two main things that were kind of holding back this title waiver, gone. So the expanded unemployment insurance at the federal level ended the end of July. And after some fears, these eviction cases in the state could proceed as soon as today, the day we're taping, that's now been kicked to September 1st. Just to
2: add on to that very quickly, there was originally kind of a threat from the Judicial Council to have That eviction moratorium on court proceedings lift today, the day we're recording this podcast. And then they were intensely lobbied by lawmakers and the governor to postpone it until September 1st. So September 1st, it's official. That's the clock. And that's an important date because
1: that's the day after the
2: legislature is set to expire for
1: the year. And so if the state lawmakers are going to pass anything, it would have to happen by the end of this month. And the
2: date September rent is due.
1: So on the federal side, uh, no deal in Congress. You might have heard, however, about the President Trump's executive orders in this area. He did issue one trying to prohibit or saying that it was a prohibition on evictions. But all that did was simply ask federal agencies to consider perhaps stopping evictions, so it doesn't actually do anything. And then on another executive order on expanded unemployment insurance would be for $300 additionally a week, but that may not even be legal. And even if it is, Governor Newsom said it was sort of too complicated for California to actually do it. And now the Senate is recessed until after Labor Day, and so not a lot of help coming from the feds.
2: That's right. And this is what we get into with the interview with Representative Waters um, It's kind of the, an update on those negotiations. Doesn't sound very auspicious.
1: No. And so we should note, too, that some of the landlord protections that have been passed as part of the initial round of coronavirus relief, such as a deferral of mortgage payments, those are going away, too. And a deferral is not a waiver, right? So even if they have been deferred, and I've talked to some landlords that have gotten this, what's known as forbearance of their mortgage payments, mm-hmm. that's due at some point within six months or within a year. And so those payments are not going away. And so the stories that I've been doing on this, I spoke with for the top lobbyist for the California Apartment Association, Deb Carlton. She told me, look, if you want to talk about a wave of evictions, you really should also be talking about a wave of foreclosures because without rent payments and without assistance from the federal government, we're looking at that too.
2: I mean, she's right. I think there's legitimate questions about what type of aid should be provided to smaller landlords versus larger corporate landlords who might be able to weather a financial hit of misrent payments quicker. And that's certainly part of the debate that we're hearing here in Sacramento as legislators try to come up with some type of solution in the absence of federal action
1: you're in Sacramento. Why don't you talk 111 degrees here? I don't want to talk. Yikes. But why don't you sort of share what the proposals are to do something about this now that kind of all eyes are on the governor and the legislature in a very short period of time to take action?
2: Sure. So not much has actually changed since we last discussed what the proposals were in the legislature. Two main proposals. I recommend people listen to the previous versions of the podcast that referenced these earlier for more details. But one of the proposals is from Senator Atkins, leader of the Senate from San Diego. This is SB 1410. This is the one that the Landlord Association... And landlords broadly are more fans of, but have not fully embraced still. The solution here is, okay, we're going to compensate landlords for missed rent payments by giving them tax credits and the amount of those missed rent payments. And renters, you'll have until 2024 to start paying your missed rent that you couldn't pay because you were financially impacted by COVID. And you'll have 10 years to pay it and all that money goes to the state. So in the meantime, you can't be evicted for those payments accrued during the COVID period. The landlord has to present you with the option of this kind of state repayment plan. So complicated. It is complicated and there's serious questions as to especially the tax credit portion of this whether it's actually going to work, both in an administrative way and whether it's enough money for landlords to meet their mortgage, their utility bills, etc. Property
1: taxes, yes.
2: Exactly. Yeah. They, they are not going to get the full value of their missed rent through these tax credits. That is pretty clear. The other proposals is from Assemblyman David Chu. This is AB 1436. This takes eviction for non-payment of rent during the COVID period, completely off the table and says, okay, landlords, you cannot evict a renter who has either been laid off or has higher medical bills because of COVID. You can pursue that rent basically privately. You can go after them in civil court for that money, but you can't evict them because they haven't paid that rent yet, right? This is the proposal that tenants groups are most excited about. And so lawmakers are in negotiations right now, assembly, Senate, and Governor Newsom trying to come up with some solution that, you know, might have elements of those proposals as well as others.
1: Well this just seems and, and again, I'm not in Sacramento and my ear's not totally to the ground on this, but this seems like as as hard of a problem to solve as I can you know, think of in the time that I've been kind of watching this stuff. I mean, you have limited funds, number one, limited time, number two, and limited by, and you correct if I'm wrong, but I believe because it would have to take effect immediately, they would need a two-thirds supermajority to pass any proposal in both houses of the legislature, which is hard for anything, let alone something that is sort of this monumental and would involve this many moving parts and this many interest groups. And so, Uh, That just seems really extremely difficult. I I would imagine folks have been counting on the federal government
2: to do something, but that doesn't appear to be happening, and now everybody's kind of stuck. I think that's an accurate assessment. The one thing I would push back slightly on, well, a couple things. One is there has been talk about inserting some type of renter-landlord eviction protections into what's called a budget trailer bill. It's basically a way of getting around the two-thirds vote that you need for legislation to get into effect. Now, as far as I know, I don't know what the status of that is. That seems somewhat of an obvious solution to trying to get that two thirds vote, but potentially legally suspect as well. The other thing I would push back on is, yes, this is very difficult for lawmakers and Governor Newsom to deal with in a compressed time frame while they're dealing with a, a bunch of other issues. Yes, they don't have money from the federal government to work with they have had time. Absolutely. I don't want to give the impression that they haven't had time, just that they don't now. But yes, keep going. They have had since April, since the Judicial Council said, we are going to hit the pause button on eviction proceedings, explicitly saying so that the legislature and the governor can come up with a solution. And so it it is really the Judicial Council saying, you know what, we are on kind of legal shaky ground. We can't do this forever. Right. That is what is forcing them to act. So could they have come up with a solution at any period between April and now? Yes. They didn't know they weren't going to get federal money at this point. Me reading the tea leaves, I could tell you Congress not the most functional place in the world. And not only
1: that, even with some federal money, it wasn't like there was not going to be a concern about evictions at some point. You knew there was going to be an issue that was going to be coming. How great the problem was, or large the problem was, you know, undetermined. But there was no scenario where there was going to be no problem at all.
2: And I had an interview with Senator Atkins. I asked her, you know, can you guarantee that this is going to get done before September first? And she said, Look, I can't guarantee anything, but this is top of mind for us. For meeting with our colleagues in the assembly and the governor very frequently. And she also pointed to other financing mechanisms beyond the tax credit, including this kind of economic relief fund, little ambiguously defined, but this was an idea from another senator where basically they give the option for corporations and individuals to pay their corporate taxes and personal income taxes in advance Mm -hmm. in out years. And that will basically generate some cash flow now for the state to handle this. yeah. So there's all these other ideas that are in the mix. This is how mistakes are made in policy, right? It's right. like two weeks, everyone's yeah. scrambling together, right. and they don't have a clear idea of what they're going to do.
1: Before we get to your story, I just want to make one quick note about some of the local plans that exist to prevent evictions. I mean, there have been roughly between a quarter and a third of cities around the state have passed something During the pandemic, that was aimed to stall or prevent evictions. Some of them have expired already, but even the ones that exist, there's some concerns there too. And and I've written about the one in the city of Los Angeles. LA's plan says that you can't be evicted if you've been financially impacted by the coronavirus, but it requires tenants potentially to go to court to use that defense, right? And the lion's share, large majority of eviction cases happen with tenants not having lawyers. And mm-hmm. so hard to present a defense if you don't have someone on your behalf. Plus, landlords don't really like this idea either in the city because in some cases, like L.A.'s, they could be waiting until at least well into 2021 to be able to enforce rent repayment from this past spring. And so neither tenants nor landlords are really enthused about some of the local protections that exist in L.A. and many other places. Nobody's happy. So we're talking about all this potential two weeks to avert eviction crisis in the future. But as you've written, there are a lot of evictions that are already happening during the pandemic. Tell us about how you figured this out or what you learned about that.
2: Mm. This is nice. This is how it's like to be interviewed by Liam Dillon. (laughs) Like if you were hosting like Good Day LA or something.
1: I'm trying to tee up here and you're ruining the moment, you know? Well, I, it's
2: just nice to be greeted with like such a, I don't know, welcoming and warm tone, you know? So I, let's start here. I think when people think of a moratorium, which I think you said this earlier, but when your average Californian hears or reads in a newspaper headline, Governor Newsom implements eviction moratorium or state court system issues eviction moratorium, what they think is, okay, sheriff's departments are not going to apartments or homes and kicking people out of their former homes, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's Mm -hmm. what you picture an eviction to be, and that's what you picture a moratorium to be. Right. But that is not the case. Evictions have been happening since March 4th, which is when the governor declared a state of emergency, and since March 19th, which is when the governor declared shelter in place, and since April 6th, which is when the Judicial Council put a halt on eviction proceedings, and that's because there was a certain subset of eviction cases that were not affected by anything the governor did or anything the judicial council did. And those were evictions that were already through the court system that were simply on sheriff's dockets, on what's called their lockout calendars, waiting to be enforced. So this is typically for evictions for non-payment of rent in February or a lease violation in early March. Stuff that wasn't related to COVID, but would still result in a eviction and sheriffs physically coming out to a property and locking someone out well into after the virus had hit California. So how many people are we talking about here? So we issued public records act requests, which I know you're familiar with Liam to basically every sheriff's department in the state. And we asked for the eviction lists. We asked for the the lockout records. And to my surprise, A good number of sheriff's departments provided us these documents. Many of them had names of tenants and addresses.
1: And to be clear, this is public information. The surprise is that they turned it over, not
2: that the information was public. Right. But anyway, keep going. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So we got over 40 sheriff's departments. We didn't hear back from some big ones, most notably Los Angeles County where I'm still waiting for a CD-ROM to be sent to me sometime in the next few days, I was told. So eagerly awaiting a CD-ROM. Actually, shout out, if anybody has a CD-ROM drive or reader here in the Sacramento area, I will be in need of that to get at these documents. But we did get some big ones, San Diego, Riverside, San Bernardino. And we found that over 1,600 households had been evicted since March 4th which, again, is when the governor declared a state of emergency. About a third of that was since March 19th, since shelter in place. That is likely a severe underestimate of the number of people who were evicted. One, because we're only counting households. And so there's, you know, you get these documents back and there might be five or six names for each household, right? Right. Or it'll say DBA up to 10, which means like there's a considerable number of people in these households. Plus, you add in the fact that many evictions are informal evictions where the landlord says, get out, and nothing shows up in court, or they cancel the eviction date with the sheriff because the tenant has already, has already left, left. Yeah. plus these huge counties that we didn't get. So yeah. that 1,600 figure, although I think eye-popping, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. we got a lot of attention. Oh, wow, over 1,000 people have been evicted despite these moratorium, right. moratorias, moratoria, it's likely a, a significant underestimate. I mean, you could see,
1: I mean, obviously the shelter in place means that if you don't have a place to shelter, you're not following that. And so you could certainly see the tenant concerns about you know, releasing people fend for themselves without a place to stay during this time. You could also, in some cases, depending on the situation, certainly feel some sympathy for landlords who were counting on getting their property back and then not being able to do it. You know, what do you think the response could have been to the situation Who could have done something about it, and why didn't they?
2: That's a very, very good question. So you talk to tenants groups, and they are pretty firm in the belief that Newsom, in his executive orders, could have instructed sheriffs not to perform these lockouts. They also say that Attorney General Javier Becerra could have issued some type of guidance. He's the state's top cop, right? He's in charge of law enforcement. He could have done something here. I think there are legitimate constitutional issues when it comes to separation of powers, where unfortunately the Newsom administration did not respond to multiple requests for comment. Uh, But I think that's what they would have said, is we would have been challenged in court over this, and I think they're right. However, lots of things Newsom has done during the pandemic have been challenged in court. You knew all the stuff with houses of worship and limiting the number of people who could, that was gonna be challenged in court. So I think tenants groups have some frustration there, as well as Becerra, his press office gave me a comment saying, hey, look, we can't tell officers not to enforce a court order. However, they didn't respond on the record to questions like, well, could you tell them to have delayed it? You know, you have 180 days typically to enforce what's called a writ, that's legalese for a order from the court to enforce an eviction. Mm -hmm. Could you have said, hey, why don't you skew towards the end of the 180 days? And that gives six months. To your broader question, I mean, landlords, if you're not going to enforce these evictions, they are stuck with these tenants in their units who are likely not going to be paying them rent. Right. And that's a significant financial burden. Along with tenants that we profiled who were on these eviction lists, Who are now homeless. Who are now having to scramble to find housing in some way. I'm sure not everybody's homeless,
1: but certainly having to lost their house. Yeah. Uh
2: No, no. and And I want to be specific here. So we profiled three tenants who have been evicted in this particular circumstance. Two were homeless. So a woman who was evicted in Vaca and her 11-year-old child, they stay in a car for a good amount of time. The 11-year-old child is distance learning on a laptop while in the same car that he's sleeping in. That woman is now in a motel that's paid for by the county. We profiled another eviction up in Humboldt where a couple was evicted. One member of the couple is now homeless, sleeping on the streets in Humboldt County on the outskirts of Eureka. But yeah, I didn't mean to imply that every one has become homeless. And then on the flip side, we talked to a landlord who's in the situation of hey, look, you know, I'm $10,000 in the hole yep. and I can't evict my renter. Yep. And my mortgage payments, I'm worried I'm not going to be able to make them. So I think lawmakers were more constrained in terms of the compensation they could provide landlords if they were going to institute this type of eviction moratorium protecting this particular subset of tenants.
1: So kind of hinted about this, but again, shelter in place is, or stay at home imply, of course, that you have a home to stay in during the pandemic, which is important to preventing the spread of the virus. What kind of public health risks have there been because some of these evictions have been proceeding?
2: So there is no documented case yet of an eviction lockout leading to some type of spread of the virus. I want to be clear here, right? However, you talk to public health experts. I talked to Dr. Margot Kushel, been on the podcast before, big kind of public health homelessness expert. And she describes kind of this nightmare scenario where you have deputies going from apartment to apartment or house to house, typically these multiple lockouts Occur on the same day. Right. These are some highly charged situations sure. that get emotional. There's screaming. Sometimes there's physical contact. Sometimes deputies have to physically enter the house. So you can easily foresee a scenario where uh, the virus could spread through literally that mechanism of the lockout, not to mention renters who have been evicted moving into unsafe housing situations that might be overcrowded, right. moving into homeless shelters where we've seen outbreaks of the virus. So public health experts, not big fans of evictions during shelter in place. There were a couple anecdotes that I think illuminate this in the reporting. One is in San Bernardino, a sheriff's spokesman there told me that there were two instances of deputies who were performing an eviction were told by the people that were they were supposed to evict that they were quarantining in place yeah. because of COVID and said, okay, we won't evict you. We'll give, we'll give you the remainder of your quarantine period to get out. Now, obviously tenants could abuse that. And that's one of the issues that was brought up. But what if they had said, eh, you know, screw it, we're still gonna evict you. That seems like a very dangerous public health situation. The other anecdote, which was illuminating, was in, again, in Humboldt County, where Humboldt County sheriffs showed up to an eviction without masks. And this was in July. You're supposed to be wearing masks, yes. And so those masks were optional. And so I talked to the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department and I asked, you know, well, why aren't you guys required to wear masks? And basically, the response I got, well, you know, they have masks on them, so if they want to put them on, they can. They're supposed to obey social distancing guidelines, but we don't see much more risk in this situation than, you know, five people standing online line at Costco. So that was, at least for the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department, that was the attitude there. That was illuminating, right? And I yep. think somewhat contravenes the intent of Governor Newsom, both in his eviction moratorium, but also just generally his shelter-in-place guidelines and his admonitions to have people wear masks. The last thing I would want to add is like, you know, some sheriff's departments decided not to do this. In the void of a clear state directive, many sheriff's departments said, Screw it. We're not going to perform these lockouts on our right. calendar.
1: That was the case in LA up until they had about a thousand, according to reports. And until, I guess, was it this past week or the week prior, they began running through their list. But for some time, LA sheriffs were, I guess, putting
2: their docket on hold. That's right. Yeah. So LA did it. Numerous other counties stopped. Yeah. Those counties that didn't most notably in terms of the count here, San Bernardino, Riverside, Kern County yeah. did a bunch of evictions after shelter in place. To fix this problem, uh, we're going to ask
1: these problems, these looming problems, uh, we're going to talk to Congresswoman Waters about that. Sounds good. We're here with Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who represents the 43rd District in California, which includes large parts of South Los Angeles, Torrance, Inglewood, and other communities in Southern Los Angeles. Congresswoman Waters, thank you so much for being with us.
0: You're welcome, and I'm delighted to be with you today.
1: So we've been talking a lot in California about a potential cliff or wave of evictions that tens here may be facing in the coming weeks. How worried are you about that?
0: I am extraordinarily worried about the potential crisis we are going to be confronted with. This business of the rent moratorium that we placed in the federal government and the moratoriums that have been placed by many of our cities, and other jurisdictions is running out. It is over at the federal government, and many of our cities they had moratoriums, and they no longer are in existence. They're over, and the federal government, in addition to an end to the moratorium, evictions can take place when the landlords exercise their right to give a 30-day notice. That 30-day notice is in operation down. Yeah. We are in negotiations on the HEROES bill. that has got my $100 billion in the bill for rental assistance and no negotiations to take it, please.
1: So, Congresswoman, you, you referenced the HEROES bill, which that House passed in May. That includes your provision, about $100 billion in rental assistance. Is that what the federal government should be doing, simply passing the HEROES bill, or is there more to it than that?
0: The HEROES bill is extremely important, responding to this pandemic, in addition to the CARES Act that we had, recognizing that the unemployment benefits, the $600 subsidy is running out, the moratorium on evictions is over, the stimulus that we had to our constituents that helped them and their families put food on the table, As the $1,200 that we did to each of the two adults in a family and $500 to the children. That's gone. And so we have the HEROES bill following up on the CARES Act to continue for the federal government of the United States of America to assist the families and deal with the pain that they're all experiencing and to deal with this economy. And so, yes, HEROES bill is essential. And unfortunately, the negotiations are not taking place. So what's the holdup?
2: What is making negotiations so difficult?
0: Well, the negotiations are difficult because the Republicans have decided that what we passed in the House of Representatives is too expensive. Ours is a $3.4 trillion bill that addresses problems in the state who are out of money and who are desperate. We call it the Heroes bill. Because all of those people on the front line, not only the nurses and the doctors, the janitors, but people who work and go to work for cities and states every day, doing what is necessary to keep cities and states running, will be laid off unless we supply these cities and states with additional funds I wish to keep the workers working and keep them paid. And so we have a three-point trillion bill. That includes that. It includes my $100 billion bill for rental assistance. It includes more money for the PPP that is the lending to our small business. The PPE for the equipment that's needed in hospitals and in clinics and in nursing homes. This is an important piece of bill just to keep America going. And so we've got to pass the Heroes bill. It is being held up because the Republicans refuse to spend that kind of money, Nancy Pelosi, who is our top negotiator, along with Senator Schumer, went into the negotiations. And after they entered roadblocks, they finally said, "Okay, we'll take a trillion dollars off the table. Will you commit to a trillion dollars so that we have two trillion dollars rather than three point four trillion dollars to deal with this pandemic?" And they said, "No." They only want to spend a trillion dollars. They will not begin to address the problem. They don't want to continue with the $600 subsidy. They said, okay, we may can come up with $400 subsidy for the unemployed, but the states are going to have to match us with $100, and we won't go beyond 400 not 600 The states and the cities don't have that money. We want $600. We need $600. But I believe some compromises could be made. Republicans, we get off of forcing or trying to force the states to come up with an additional $100 for everybody that needs it. And so we're at a standstill. We don't know what they're saying on the rental assistance. They don't want to do anything. The president came up with one of his phony executive orders and what he said was we will extend the moratorium with no money. Mm -hmm. When you extend the moratorium, what you're basically saying is, landlords, we want people to live there for free. And we want Uh them to be there for a length of time undetermined. And we don't have any money and decide that. What they did was they said a moratorium that would be decided uh, by HUD and EHS and other agencies Mm -hmm. that would review all of this and make decisions about whether or not COVID 19 really needs
1: this. I know, Congresswoman, you used to be in the state legislature. Given the absence of federal action in this eviction space and in the rental assistance space, if you were still in the legislature or if you were even the governor, what would you be doing right now? Or what should they be doing?
0: So, what the city of LA attempted to do uh, with using some of the funds that was in the CARES Act in order to assist the renters, I think they had about a million.
1: A hundred million. It was a hundred million. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, And they did what they could do, and of course, it was not nearly enough. But they were able to help, you know, some of the renters by giving them two thousand dollars. And more than one hundred and fifty thousand people applied for assistance on the That's first right. day, and only fifty thousand people were selected to receive assistance. And the county now has come up with a million dollars, and they think that they can help some people. It's not going to be enough. But what I would do as the legislature, I'd thank the city for using the CARES Act money uh, to try and assist. And then I would ask them to take a look at other efforts that are being made. You have all of this talk about defund the police department so that you could use that money to do uh, things that are absolutely necessary in helping the poor and the seniors, etc. I would say to them, if, in fact, you are looking at the budgets of the police or any other budgets in your city, where you think that you could extract some dollars to use short rental assistance, I would encourage you to do that. I thank you, Los Angeles. I thank you, the county. And I thank you that you had CARES money, uh, COVID money that right. we had sent to you to be used. Now, if you can find any more money in those budgets. And since we're reimagining what can be done with police departments, because what I think defunding means not zeroing out police departments, not total defunding as it is being described. I think it is reimagining and saying, oh, here we're finding all of this overtime money. This overtime money has been used for a long time. So what we're going to do is reduce parts of that budget. We're going to talk about how. Police respond to calls and if these are the homeless that they're dealing with. We're going to reduce that and we're going to ask the county with the mental health department to deal with these issues. And I would do all of those things in the legislature and ask governors to try and guide our time until these negotiations to come to some agreement to get that mental assistance out. I want to get back
2: just quickly to the HEROES Act and other efforts at some type of second round of federal relief. You know, whether it's $3 trillion or $2 trillion or $1 trillion, that's a lot of money. And you hear a lot, especially more from conservatives now, concerns about budget deficit and adding to the debt. Do you share those concerns and kind of what's your response to those concerns?
0: Well, first of all, let me just say that Republicans only care about debt when Democrats are leading the way to spend money. This president and the Republicans have spent money wildly and they weren't concerned about debt or deficit. And so, first of all, I put aside their argument. Secondly, I take a look at this pandemic and the destruction that it's doing to our economy and the way that businesses are closing down and the fact that families who had limited income who work for minimum wages, have no money, and have no way to put food on the table for their children. And I take a look at evictions added to the homelessness, not just Uh, uh, in urban areas, but all over America. And I would decide that this nation could do what is necessary to stop that kind of devastation. And yes, it costs money. And money is going to have to be spent in order to, have just a halfway decent quality of life of the families of this nation. Our people deserve it. We're the number one country in the world. Other countries are looking at us. I am already disappointed that we have not lived up to our reputation with other countries. They are absolutely amazed that we have the kind of president that we have. He has not only shattered our relations with foreign allies. He has embarrassed us with any number of things that he has done that I won't go into all of the details yet, except to say that going in and absolutely getting out of the Paris Agreement, going in and tearing up the nuclear agreement that we had dealing with such other countries that said that with Iran, we can stop the nuclear proliferation. But yeah. We are already embarrassed we're no longer leaders in the world, and I want us to step up to the plate to show that we're not gonna let people get put out on the sidewalk and die on the street, and we're gonna do something that will not exacerbate homelessness that we have.
1: Congressman, I'm glad you brought up the president. He's in recent weeks and other similar area has talked about, quote, protecting who he calls the suburban housewives of America from having low income housing in their communities. What did you think when you first heard the president's remarks about fair housing recently?
0: The first thing that I thought is he continues to be stupid to refer to all of suburban women as housewives. Uh First of all, that definition of women is not even used anymore, even for homemakers. And secondly, we have professional women in our suburban areas who were also insulted in the way that he did that. Thirdly, it's racist. And what he was doing was what he continues to do. Having people scared about folks coming into their communities and destroying their communities that should not be there, It's racism, all of that. What he was doing was he was politicizing the issue of whether or not we can build affordable housing, whether or not we can stop denorizing folks open- and and keeping them into areas that are already impacted. It was a very, very immoral kind of attempt to continue to frighten people about what would or could happen if somehow all of these people start to move from these cities and these poor people and these black people, et cetera. It is outrageous what this man is doing.
2: I'm curious how you think Governor Gavin Newsom has handled the pandemic so far in California?
0: Well, i gonna tell you something. He really did approach this in a tremendously helpful way. When he rolled out and was willing to spend money and understood what the problems were, and when, when he went after that PPE, even though PPE was being commandeered by right. the President of the United States and redirecting it to states where he had Republican governors, et cetera. He did a good job. I think what happened as the pressure built all over this country by not only Republican governors, by the president of the United States who was insisting that businesses be opened up and that the opportunities be opened up for people to gather, I think he fell into responding to that pressure Uh and opening up the opportunities for businesses to operate a bit too soon. And Californians not not only went to the bars and had no food to congregate without masks, and they went to the beaches without masks, but I think he did a fabulous job in the beginning.
1: Some of the CARES Act money he got from the federal government he's used or is trying to use on homelessness prevention. And I know that you've been involved in homelessness prevention efforts in L.A. for decades now, do you believe the problem is as bad now as it's ever been in your experience? And why is that?
0: Yes, the problem, it is very bad, and it was bad before the pandemic, you know, the homelessness had began to increase, and that, that I think, is because of a lack of opportunities for jobs, for, you know, the average people. We have a lot of people who really don't have the education, they don't have the training, they don't have the backgrounds that would allow them to access some of these so called jobs that have become available in the new technology areas, but they have to eat too, and they need jobs too. And so I think that as many of the public policies in public housing that have put people out with the zero tolerance policy, plus the mentally ill that we have known have been on our streets for years, they have been in so called role. They have spread out into the communities. They're walking around without any help. They're walking around putting themselves in danger. And so I think the problem that we have with homelessness was very, very big. That was not absolutely handled in ways that we should handle it. Dealing with what we do, with the mentally ill. And those people will never now be employable. I walk through Kid Row, and I walk through these areas. There are people who will never ever be able to be employed. What are we going to do? The efforts that we have made are not good enough. Even with the money that we had on the balance for the city and the county, it took a long time to get some right. units up. Some transitional units. Mm-hmm. The cost of billing keeps escalating. The cost of supplies are going up, and it's hard to get up cost-effective units. That's the problem. In addition to that, when we develop our units, we have to have the kind of assistance to go with placing the homeless in it that will help them with their, get their medical supplies, uh-huh. help them to get to the doctor, help them to have a clean apartment. All of that costs money, and we got to pay for it. And we've not been able to absolutely get all of that together yet. And so with the pandemic now, it's even worse. And so we have a problem in this country. We have a problem in our own city and our county. I think now the number may be closer uh, to 60,000 people Uh on the streets of L.A. County uh, right now. It's overwhelming, but we should be committed to the proposition that we can solve it, that we can do something about it. And everybody has to play their part.
2: So I get a lot of emails with this criticism when I write about homelessness issues in California and then particularly in Los Angeles so let's let's just take Los Angeles for an example homelessness has has been a problem there for decades there's typically been a Democratic mayor Democratic local elected representatives Democratic representatives like yourself at the federal level at the state level there's a Democratic governor. We've had Democratic majorities in the legislature. Why hasn't that type of kind of Democratic power been able to tackle this issue?
0: Well, let me just say this. It's not about why haven't Democrats in power been able to do anything about this issue. The issue is not simply about finding somebody a bed to sleep in or an apartment. The issue is about what I alluded to, And that is inequality of people being able uh, to have jobs that pay a decent amount of money. The inequality of payday loans that rob people of the money that they have, the fraudulent way in which they lend people money and then hold them hostage forever, and them not being able to pay the money and them attempting to pay the money out of their meager earnings. The problem is in housing discrimination that's been a part of public policy at every level of government with these covenants that are still operating in ways. The problem is the people in suburban areas and other areas are the, do not want to have affordable housing in their uh-huh. communities. You know about not in my own backyard. These are public policies. This uh-huh. has nothing to do with a Democrat or a Republican and I'll find you a unit. This is about what you saw in the protesters in the streets about. It is about inequality. It is about racism. It is a lack of resources. It is a lack of families with the ability to make a living. And so if you write about it, please don't fall into the trap of Republicans talking about Democrats having done their job. Of course we have done everything that we could do Do you know the federal money that comes into our state dealing with homelessness? I am the chair of the Uh Financial Services Committee. I'm responsible. And we get substantial homeless money into all parts of the state. It is not about a unit. It is not about simply having a bed to sleep in. It's about undoing the practices and the laws, the procedures of racism of public policy that has brought us to this point. And so we've got to, those protesters on the streets said, we've got to change these young people, old people, Christians, Jews, every ethnic group that you can think of, the cultures that came together is talking about change in America that will undo homelessness, will undo education that is not free all of the children will undo people still dying of preventable diseases. Talk about it in ways that it's not just politicians who are trying to convince people they're better than somebody else and pointing at, you know, Democrats. This is a, goes deeper than that. There is money. We have in the greater Los Angeles area, an oversight committee trying to advance and point out where the greatest problems are, where to spend the money. We have programs that come into being who said they can do, you know, what we need to do to house people. We have temporary shelters. We have all of what any, you know, reliable government would try to do, but the numbers keep growing. The numbers keep growing because of the other systemic problems that we have.
1: Congressman, you've endorsed a ballot measure here in California, the Proposition 21. That's the measure that would expand rent control statewide. Why is it something that you believe is important?
0: Well, let me just say this. Affordable housing is almost impossible to find. The cost of housing had increased substantially, not only in California and in Los Angeles, but in many of our municipalities all over the country. And people have not been able to afford, even people who are working every day, the cost of housing. Some of that has to do with public policy. In addition to that, there's densification, such as you see in Englewood, where Uh we have economic development that's expanding with these teams coming in. But displacement of people who've lived there for years because, number one, people are offering to buy out these people, and people are sometimes taking advantage of that. The rents are expanding. They're Uh going up. And, of course, people on fixed incomes cannot afford the housing. Millennials can forget it. They can't <laughs> get this rental or they can't buy a housing. Gen X can forget it. They're out of it. The economy has basically slapped them in the face and told them, you go to school, you get an education, you're going to have a career, you're going to make money. It's all been made to be a lie. I want to tell you, if there's anything that is happening now that we're going to all regret. We're going to regret that these young people have not been able to successfully navigate this economy in ways that will guarantee them a good living, a place that, that they can buy, rent that they can afford, children that they can have, and a vacation that they deserve.
1: <laughs> Congressman Waters, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much.
0: You shouldn't get me into preaching like this. you get me all
2: fired up. Hopefully it spills over to the hearing. You take care, Congressman. Thanks so much.
0: Okay. All right. Goodbye, man.
2: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And me on Twitter, Liam Dillon. But my Twitter name is at Dylan And we'll be back, hopefully, in two weeks. Uh, Please, a reminder to rate and review us if you can, and you'll be listening to us soon. Thanks again.